0: Hello, and welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Sam. And I'm Michael. And for today's episode, we are going to be discussing the Belt and Road Initiative. This is a topic that's already come up a few times in our previous episodes and is very much in the news of late. It's also essential for understanding modern China. The Chinese Communist Party characterizes the initiative as a bid to enhance regional connectivity and embrace a brighter future via economic integration and infrastructure improvement. This will ultimately bring the world towards a new China-centered global trading network. Critics of the BRI, including the United States, describe it as geopolitical ambitions cloaked in economics debt-trap diplomacy used to extract concessions from weaker countries. So, for today's episode, we are going to be covering what is the BRI, what are the arguments for, and what are the arguments against.
1: The Belt and Road Initiative, in short, is a modern-day Chinese attempt to rebuild the old Silk Road, except this is actually more ambitious than what the old Silk Road was. Um, I could characterize it as a a string of wildly ambitious economic development projects, uh, particularly Infrastructure. Some example projects that I want to bring up are cargo rails in Kazakhstan, natural gas projects in Bangladesh, highways in Pakistan, dams in Guinea, light rail systems in Ethiopia, and deep water ports in Greece.
0: Yeah, the BRI was first announced in 2013 by Xi Jinping, the leader of Communist China, during state visits to Indonesia and Kazakhstan. And in the Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt refers to overland road and rail routes called. The Silk Road Economic Belt, which stretches the Eurasian landmass all the way from China to Europe. And the road, confusingly, refers to sea routes from the South China Sea all the way to the Mediterranean. Uh, China is constructing a string of pearls, which are a series
1: of deep water ports en route. And the amount of money involved in this project is truly staggering. From Xi Jinping's own mouth during his conferences, he has said... You know, at the very start, this was a $1 trillion project, and at the most recent conference, he cited $6 trillion as the mark. And we expect that number is honestly just going to keep growing bigger and bigger the longer this goes on and the more countries sign on to it. Once fully realized, this project is going to encompass about 65 countries, if not more in the future. Uh, it will account for approximately 30% of the world's GDP affect 60% of the world's population and about 75% of the world's known energy reserves are going to circle through this initiative. And that last point is really worth reiterating. A big, big, big motivation for this project is energy security in China. More on that later.
0: Yeah. So where is all this cash coming from? We could list a couple of names, most notably the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Silk Road Fund, the Export-Import Bank of China. But the important thing to understand is that these are all essentially or de facto or actually CCP organizations. These are all under the direct control of the central authority in Beijing. And this is a government investment project, not a series of private investment projects.
1: So I want to circle back real quick to that point that I made earlier about energy reserves and energy security. One of China's main concerns geopolitically, geostrategically even, is that a tremendous amount of its oil comes through the narrow Straits of Malacca, 80% of their oil comes through there. Uh, They are the world's number one importer on net of energy. Uh, And so, yeah, it's it's a very hungry country that needs a lot of fuel to keep its operations going. And they don't really have a good option for obtaining it, given that the United States, their principal adversary, has the world's strongest navy, and the Western world in general just kind of has them boxed in. I mean, think about their geography for a second, just to highlight this, because I think it's really worth uh, focusing on for a second. If China wanted to get ships in and out of the country to other global markets, first of all, right off their coast, they're completely boxed in by Western allies. Think South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines. Indonesia is obviously pretty big. They own a lot of islands. This all could sever the trade connections that they currently enjoy if anything were to go haywire for them. Again, the Straits of Malacca is another choke point and you can't really go the other way around the Eurasian landmass cuz it goes literally through the arctic ocean you know that entails the use of icebreakers and a bunch of uh, expensive routes that aren't open All through the year, so the need for a overland route for China is, you know, seen as being very important in Beijing.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Energy independence is a huge consideration of the Belt and Road Initiative, just because so much of the world's energy currently flows through the sea, and there's really not great land transport options available. Which, as we mentioned just a minute ago, uh, via the belt portion of the Belt and Road is something that China seeks to remedy through a series of road and rail networks through their Eurasian landmass. So I think we covered that point enough. What are some of the other reasons that China is
1: looking to do the Belt and Road initiative? Well, there's definitely a hearts and mind element to it. It should go without saying that if China builds up a massively successful port or repaves your road in some third world African country, that's going to likely endear the local population to China. This is a badly needed uh, PR victory for the CCP, they, they haven't enjoyed the best reputation in the world. But they're looking to make friends in a lot of these growing upstart economies, especially in Africa, also in Central Asia they will package this, the Chinese at least, they'll package this as an effort to provide economic integration for the rest of the country, which is, you know, it's beneficial for everyone if everyone can trade a little bit easier. That's fair enough. Um, And infrastructure is a huge part of that.
0: Yeah. Another major consideration is that so much of domestic Chinese economy is involved in manufacturing and production. Think of building houses, building roads, building rail, building washing machines, all sorts of stuff like that. And given the slowing demographic growth, as well as the slowing economic growth at home for China, China is looking to expand its economic opportunities outside of China. Because with with all these sorts of built projects, there is definitely a limit to how much you need. You don't need five washing machines or six properties or whatever. So China is hoping to export its capacity and know-how abroad into other markets which are still developing and still need all of these built projects.
1: Yeah, to restate that, it's China builds stuff. They've always built stuff. It's a hallmark of their civilization ever since the Great Wall. They just they they take on these big flashy infrastructure projects, and they they've built up an entire industry around doing just that. That right now has uh, more or less idle hands. Uh, you, you can look online and see videos of these essentially ghost cities uh, that Chinese construction firms have built, these massive apartment blocks that can hold hundreds of thousands of people and have just been left vacant because they've sort of saturated the market in a lot of places. So the Belt and Road is a...
0: Yeah, and real quick, I want to interject just as a sort of interesting anecdote. Um, I believe however you categorize middle class in China, the average middle class family owns 3 or more properties which if you compare that to the United States is crazy like most if if you think middle class in the United States you probably have a continuing mortgage on your single property let alone own 3 and are looking to maybe buy more so that just shows you how skewed production of manufacturing is in China
1: yeah so in other words this project is a really effective way to keep the uh Chinese construction industry uh, booming. And, you know, spoiler alert, they're not really employing a lot of local people uh, in most of these target areas. They're using their domestic industry, which we will definitely circle back to later. And
0: one last last point before we move off the rationale topic is a lot of these projects, infrastructure projects, flow through Western China, specifically Xinjiang and Tibet. And these entities are seen as politically separatist and not as part of the majority Han ethnic Chinese group. So for Beijing's perspective, this is a way of integrating the economic less prosperous and less integrated Western parts of China into a more cohesive Chinese whole. A lot of road and rail will flow all the way from Beijing, West through Tibet, West through Xinjiang, all the way to Europe. And this is a great way of unifying the outlying
1: provinces. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a fair point. Maybe a side benefit, not one they anticipated, but uh, it's definitely there. So let's move into... I'd like us to make the best case that we can for the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, sort of I guess you could say it's from the Chinese point of view. Um, If this is truly just an economic project, then the economics should make sense. And in a lot of areas, they do. Yeah, that's exactly correct.
0: For a lot of these projects, it does make economic sense. A lot of the poorest countries in the world have two major advantages that they can export and use to engage in the global market. These are natural resources and labor. Even if your country doesn't have much else, you probably have natural resources to exploit. And people who need to be employed in jobs. And even if you don't have
1: natural resources, you definitely have labor, right? That's the number one exportable good everywhere in the world. Every country
0: has labor, exactly. So for a lot of these poorer countries, say the hourly cost of labor is incredibly low, like literally pennies as an instance, but there's really poor infrastructure. There's no road to get in and out of the village. There's no ports to load up the ships to take the, the manufactured good elsewhere. What ends up happening is that your total factor cost of production is actually very high despite labor being very low because the cost of transport and infrastructure is just so high. So if China were to construct roads, bridges, ports, et cetera, then it allows a lot of these poorer countries to enter the global market. And as we've seen with China itself over the course of one or two generations, China's entrance to the global world market has tremendously increased its standards of living. I believe within the course of one or two generations, its total wealth has increased 27 times, something crazy like that. So this is a huge boon to the countries that are on the receiving end of this infrastructure investment because they're able to hopefully recreate the economic success that countries like China has had. And not only just China, think of your South
1: Koreas, think of your Taiwans, et cetera. Yeah, infrastructure is crucial for countries to break into a competitive global market. Uh, And China is very good at building building infrastructure. I want to also mention, they're very expensive projects. It's not easy to do this sort of stuff, and a lot of countries simply lack the means to get it done. Uh, As an example, Uh, When I was looking at the numbers of China's investment in Laos, the bridges and roads that they're building in the country, all taken together, comprise about 13% of that country's annual GDP. So there's just no way that a lot of these countries could ever swing these projects without some sort of foreign investment entering the picture. Uh, Now, that's especially important. I want to uh, mention some of the Western criticisms real quick, targeted at these countries that are being invested in. They'll say things like, you shouldn't be dealing with China. It's an authoritarian country. Why don't you seek alternative sources of investment? They're out there. Well, the problem is the West isn't exactly giving it out that easily.
0: Yeah, not only are they not giving it out that easily, think of stipulations for IMF, International Monetary Fund, World Bank loans. There's a lot of considerations like environmental review, human rights records, uh, democracies, all this sort of stuff that make it difficult to obtain these loans, even in the best case where they are available. We'll cover that in just a second. But when you consider jumping through all these hoops versus a country that's just willing to lend you the loan with very few strings attached, it's it's sort of a no-brainer. It's like one of them is much harder to get and therefore taken less often. And this is when these funds are available. The West just offers far less infrastructure investment aid than China does right now. For instance, the, the United States fairly recently created what's known as the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. It has a budget of $60 billion to land out, even on the low end. Even if you take the Belt and Road Initiative as $1 trillion to be made available in loans, that's still pennies on the dollar in terms of what China is able to invest.
1: Yeah, so not only is the West not offering as much total aid currently they're also not even giving it out as frequently or as easily, and there's lots of environmental regulations involved. You know, they need to see a clean human rights record in their target countries. There's all sorts of things that a lot of the target belt and road countries simply aren't able to hit. Now, I don't want to make I don't want to paint the picture that it's only these despotic authoritarian regimes that China's dealing with, because that wouldn't be accurate. They're dealing with a lot of progressive democracies as well. Uh, my point is, they don't really. Italy, discrimin- is Italy to note. Yeah, it, Italy is. Part of the Belt and Road. So is Greece. Um, South Africa is in there. So I think any reasonable person can look at the economic gains to be made in these countries and see you know, this is a positive step for human flourishing around the world. I think we can all appreciate that aspect of the BRI. Yeah. I want
0: to underline just one last point, uh, what Mike was just talking about in terms of the recipient of BRI investment you know, let's say, for instance, that China is loaning to an authoritarian country, say Belarus, for instance, which they are. Um, The people in the country still need roads and bridges and rail, et cetera, built. And even if there's a corrupt government at the top, that doesn't mean that the everyday citizen doesn't need an ability to trade or to commute or live their lives. So, you know, we'll cover the recipients of the Belt and Road Aid in the next segment. But even in the case of less than ideal governments, there's still a real positive case to
1: be made that this investment is going to be improving millions of lives. Right. That's a good way to cap that off. But of course, the Belt and Road Initiative has not been without its controversy and criticisms Uh, for every bit of good that it's doing. There, I'd say, is an equal amount of Maybe not outright saber rattling, but a lot of people are are raising their eyebrows at some of the methods of the Communist Party in undertaking these projects. So we mentioned we mentioned
0: in the last segment that if this is truly just an economic project, then the economics have to make sense, and in a lot of cases they don't. Uh, So China offers very low, or in some cases, no interest loans for these massive, sometimes billion dollar infrastructure projects. Which, if you think in terms of how financing works, that's not how it works. Nobody would be able to get a 1% loan on a 5 billion dollar multi-year construction project. That's just ridiculous. So what China does have going for it instead is that it secures the rights to the underlying collateral. This is most notable in the case of Sri Lanka where the Sri Lankan government signed a loan term with the Chinese government for the construction of a new port and as they defaulted on that loan, China was actually ceded the rights to ownership to that port for a 99 year lease which is a, which is an ironic term of lease given that that's how long Hong Kong was ceded to the British for but that's that's an aside. It's as good as forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, at the
1: time. Uh, you know,
0: so, so so and one quick analogy I want to draw, and then I'll let Mike jump in, is that think of this just like a mortgage with a bank. If the bank loans you, you know, hundred thousand dollars, whatever, to buy your house, and you don't make payment, then the bank repossesses your home. That's exactly what has gone on with Sri Lanka, and. It's foreseeable that this sort of default could occur in other countries as well, given their financial situations.
1: There are some other points to bring up here as well. Um, It's because some of the economics on their face look questionable. You'd have to assume that the other motivation for this project might be a geostrategic one. Um, Like we just covered, China now has a de facto enclave in Sri Lanka with a deep water port. And what have they been lacking for a very long time? They lack naval infrastructure. They had all these naval choke points going around. Um, th- they also actually um, recently acquired a port in Kenya um, and a massive military base in Djibouti, which <laughs> is, it's funny, it's only six miles away from the American base in the same country. I'm not sure how they let that go down. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> surely they won't be listening in uh, to anything that we're doing over there, but I digress. There's been a lot of suspicion also, just like with Huawei, 5G, right? Telecommunications. All these all these companies that are undertaking these projects, they are ultimately answerable to the CCP and have to do as they say and divulge any in information that the CCP wants them to.
0: And this is worth reiterating again, as we mentioned earlier on in the show, this is not Private investment. This is not Walmart going to India and deciding to open up a distribution center. These are all government
1: to government loans. I mean, think about think about who it's meant to benefit. Yeah. Since these are these are deals from politicians to politicians, so one could argue that maybe it's the common man that can get left out in some of these equations. And in some cases, that has been true. A lot of a lot of the world is just it's simply it's fractious. Uh, many countries do not have. Uh, You know, a unified ethnicity and there's, you know, there's there's a lot of tension along those ethnic lines. Great example, Pakistan, also one of the biggest recipients of BRI investment. Pakistan has the port in Gwadar, which, you know, currently handles about 1 million tons or, or is able to handle 1 million tons of cargo per year. When China's done building it up the way that they envision it, it should balloon up to 500 million tons per year. So this is a massive project. They're throwing a lot of money at it. The complication is it is being done in an area that is populated by an ethnic minority in Pakistan, and the political elite tend to come from the northern area of Punjab. And so there have been, as a result... Uh, a lot of militant attacks on the people working on these projects in Pakistan. It's something like 45 people have been killed.
0: And it's actually funny. Of those 45 people killed, roughly
1: majority of them have been
0: Chinese because this is another major point of criticisms <laughs> about the <laughs> about the Belt and Road Initiative. I actually didn't is, know that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, this is another major point of criticism about the Belt and Road Initiative, insofar as China doesn't structure it as most projects would for the, the rest of the world. Honestly, um, you know, if you think of, again, think about like. Walmart opening up a distribution center in India. They're going to hire a bunch of Indians. Sure, they might bring some Americans over to help set the thing up, but it's going to ultimately be heavily integrated into the local economy, local people, et cetera. This is not how China structures the BRI. Instead, what China does is export its own citizens, its own materials, its own know-how, et cetera, to the recipient of the BRI and uses its own citizens to build up the project. And as we're talking about with the port in Guadalajara, this caused tremendous tensions.
1: Yeah, that's that's very much not the way that the West tends to do this this style of investment. That would probably employ local people on the ground in in Congress with, uh, you know, Western contractors. Um, something else that you know it might be an elephant in the room to people who are listening. We have seen firsthand what China tends to do once it gets economic leverage over someone. Think the NBA scandal with them, you know, censoring players. If you're a video gamer, think Activision Blizzard when they, when you know, Blizzard basically fired Blitzchung and took all of his prize money away for saying in free, Hearthstone and in Hearthstone for saying free Hong Kong. Um, so, just because China is doing a good thing sensibly for people or providing an economic good that they want, that doesn't mean that they may not use that to twist their arms politically later down the line once they've been so far entrenched that it's really costly to kick them out or politically unfavorable for the elites in that country to kick them out. Now, as we uh, also mentioned earlier, a lot of the governments that China is working with, uh, a lot of them are authoritarian military regimes, maybe war-torn or corrupt. Think Azerbaijan or Iraq, Iran, Angola, Zimbabwe, these types of places. Um, Actually, I want to throw this in real quick because I'm Mr. Slavic on the show. Um, (laughs) uh, The Chinese Communist Party, uh, I believe, was the first, if not the only, government to congratulate and fully recognize immediately Lukashenko of Belarus uh, as He's a dictator who's been in power for 26 years in Belarus, and it's widely believed that he rigged the election. Big surprise. Uh, And they have a massive industrial park being built by China as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And yeah, I I think Xi Jinping was even quicker to come out than Vladimir Putin was to say anything good about this, (laughs) to give you an idea. So yeah, political incentives follow the economic ones here.
0: So we gave the best case argument that you could make about the recipients of this aid, but... Taking a more negative view, it's worth reiterating that a large chunk of the recipients of Belt and Road Initiative investment are less than democratic, less than free, less than non-authoritarian, etc. And it's sort of one of those things that you can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep. And the same could be said in international relationships. If most of the people accepting money from you are authoritarian, corrupt governments, then that's sort of not a
1: great look, is it now? Yeah. And I want to be fair and you know, just reiterate, it's not like every country they're dealing with is like this. I'm not even sure that it is exactly the majority, but a big, big, big chunk of them are um and so that raises eyebrows understandably and once again like let me just say this china uses economics as a form of unrestricted warfare this is embedded in their doctrine this isn't crackpot conspiracy stuff. you you can go to their publicly available documents as outlined since the 1990s they have been saying this all along um let me let me highlight this real quick with what's been going on uh, between Taiwan and China uh, in the Pacific. So there's this interesting uh, thing about the U.N. General Assembly. Every country, no matter how big or how small, gets a vote that counts as exactly one. In other words, <laughs> if you are politically favorable with Kiribati in, or like a country with under one million people, that vote in the General Assembly is going to count for just as much as the Americans vote. So – Taiwan has been attempting to curry favor with these countries because you know it doesn't have as much money to throw around as China, but it has enough money to surely influence small countries like this um, and worth noting that this is
0: super important for Taiwan and this is a whole topic unto itself, but Taiwan itself doesn't actually have u n representation instead being treated as an as, as an administrative province of
1: China and if you want more on this Definitely listen to our first episode
0: about Taiwan.
1: Yeah, most of the world doesn't recognize Taiwan as its own independent country. Um, and that holds true in the UN. I think, what, like 14 or 15 countries? Yeah, 14, yeah, around there right now. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a really small amount. And, and you can correlate a lot of that recognition with, does this country get a lot of aid from China or not? <laughs> if they do get a lot of money from China, they tend to ignore Taiwan and think it's just not worth it. Um, and so, wouldn't you know it, as Taiwan started investing in these Micronesian countries, China followed and started out, started outspending the ever-loving crap out of them. <laughs> doing- yeah,
0: the, the statistic that I found is that the average uh, mainland Chinese investment project in Micronesia is around $6 million, whereas with Taiwan, it's around 500000 So, again, huge disparities in scale. China just has gobs and gobs and
1: gobs of money to throw around uh, in order to curry favor with countries. Yeah, um, it's— I guess I'd like to paint a little picture of what the investment looks like because it's kind of fun. Uh, Most of China's projects tend to be, again, big, flashy, expensive infrastructure projects that just protrude out into the skyline or are just very, very prominent. You You can see them easily. However, Taiwan, uh, the most, the funniest uh, anecdote that I saw was they threw, what, $1,600 at Palau's baseball team so that they could go attend an international tournament in Guam. And, like, every single (laughs) player on that team you know is now like, oh, Taiwan, and all of their families (laughs) are thinking, oh, Taiwan, such a great place. We're totally going to recognize them now. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Whereas, like, if you you build, like, a massive, you know, billion-dollar port in one of these countries and then nobody uses it, they're like, where did that come from?
0: Yeah, oh, no, this is not as
1: personal. <laughs> yeah. So it, you can maybe argue that Taiwan's investment is a little bit more cost efficient, but that's that. Yeah, this is, this is a little, for this another is time. A little, that's for another time. Yeah, this is
0: definitely for another time. This is getting a little far afield. And one last criticism that we want to bring up, uh, we're not going to dwell on it too much, but the whole idea of a larger, more powerful country going into a smaller, weaker one, spending lots of money, imposing lots of restrictions, on employing the employing its sort own of stuff. people. Deploying its own people in the development uh, To some people, this smacks a lot of colonialism We will just say that that is a concern and leave it at that
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's something that would be best left in the previous century Not the one that yeah. we're heading into <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, where exactly do we see this going? Some people are thinking that, oh, by the year 2050 Because of this project, China is going to be eating our lunch It's not so straightforward it might be, but a lot of things can change, right? We don't know how the United States or the West more broadly are going to respond to this. We're already starting to see some moves from, I guess, Trump has opened up that that uh that bureaucracy that you mentioned earlier that with the sixty billion dollars that was started by him in two thousand nineteen, like very recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar moves may come up.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's not a sure thing. Like, think about the Sri Lankan port session uh, from the Sri Lankan government to the Chinese. If this sort of thing keeps going on where countries continually make successions to the Chinese government to give up their sovereignty, if push comes to shove, that might not continue. You know, what happens when a country says, no, blank you, China, you're not getting our land, and then what happens? You know, obviously, debt has been a time tested uh, method of coercion between, you know, for whether that's individuals or between countries, but. Would China risk a hot war in order to
1: take what's supposedly rightfully theirs? That's an open question. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's plenty of potential for this to backfire. It's worth noting that Xi Jinping staked his entire political career on this project. It's, it's the hallmark of him, and he he certainly plans to be in power uh, by mid-century, <laughs> so he's going to keep pushing for this as, be- as best as he can.
0: If you don't know, China's constitution was amended under Xi to allow infinite term limits for the premiership that he <laughs> occupies. So, <laughs> What do you mean the McDonald's effect wasn't real? Huh? <laughs> China definitely faces a lot of Concerns domestically, and this is well beyond the scope of this episode, but you know, there's slowing growth, there's an oncoming demographic crisis with a huge imbalance between males and females and young and old. Uh, and if something of this size and scope were to fail, then you could easily see kind of everything come crashing down around the Chinese. And that would be a
1: massive PR failure, just a loss of face.
0: It'll be Chinese. a lot more than a
1: big PR failure, I uh, think. Oh, and this would be a good time to bring up the other major PR failure and loss of face that everyone's <laughs> probably been thinking about this entire episode, and that is coronavirus. Uh, yeah, yeah we, <laughs> with a potential global recession slash depression maybe on the horizon. What's going to Yeah, what's what's going <laughs> to happen with all those outstanding loans? What's going to happen to global interest rates? You know, it's going to go wacky. A lot of variables are going to change in the near future, more than likely. Yeah, and it's worth repeating again this
0: the BRI was announced in 2013, which is quite a ways off at this point and these projects are expected to continue for say another 20 years or so. So this huge wrench in the system that is the coronavirus definitely creates a lot more uncertainty and let me tell you when you're dealing with billion
1: dollar multi-year investment projects, you do not like uncertainty. All right? Now, I think we're getting kind of close to the end here, and I, I, I'm i recognizing that in this little outro of ours, we've overwhelmingly hit on the reasons that maybe this might not go so well, but it's, it's worth repeating again, the amount of money that China is offering to most of the world for these projects is still a lot more than they are being offered from any other source. And it's not like this type of investment and development is a bad thing. It's just, you, you could be forgiven for... Being a little bit suspicious about where the money's come coming from and what the ultimate motives may be. You
0: know, but in situations like this, I like to think to, of the eternal Winston Churchill and one of his great quotes about the United States, which is that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> after they've seen everything else fall through the floor. Yeah, we tried. Yeah. We tried shipping you war supplies for months and getting torpedoed by U-boats. Maybe now we'll actually join the war. Oh, wait a minute, that's kind of because Japan. Lives, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we're just going to yeah. sit on the fence as long as we can until literally our blue water navy. Fleet gets, you know.
0: Yeah, we've tried exporting democracy and guns to the rest of the world. Maybe we could
1: try exporting bridges and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. China versus the United States and the Middle East would be an interesting topic for a future episode, I think. Ooh, a future uh, episode,
0: indeed. Anyway, so I say we bring this episode to a close. We have gone on quite long enough, um, but I just want to hit on one last point before we do which is that the Belt and Road Initiative marks a striking departure from China's previous foreign policy, which was outlined by Deng Xiaoping in his 24-character strategy, which said, Observe calmly, secure our position, cope with affairs calmly, hide our capacities, and bide our time. Be good at maintaining a low profile, and never claim leadership. And whatever you think of the BRI, it is clearly a marked departure from what was China's guiding foreign policy for a number
1: of years. Uh, And right as we wrap this up, Mike. So we're excited to announce the start of the Synopsis mailbag. Uh, if you have any questions about China, even unrelated to the topics that we've covered already, why don't you drop us a line at the Podcast at gmail.com. That's synopsis. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes. Right. Yeah, we'll put it in the, in the show notes. That's synopsis with an I. Um, again, if we like your question, we'll feature it and we will answer it on air next episode.
0: So we want to thank you for tuning into the Synopsis podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Michael. And until next time, remember, nothing is to be feared,
1: only understood. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. artwork by Eli Bach.